I don't regret my decision. My actions were, have always been, dictated by my oath to uphold the law. I write this for posterity, a full account of my final visits to the house on the island at Ely, and to the ghost who I was going to write the ghost who lived there. Sarah Kingdom was not exactly a ghost, but she had not lived for a thousand years. She was always courteous towards me. There's a separate report of my first visit to the house. I couldn't see her, of course, but her voice led me to a fireside and conjured up a bowl of broth. I asked her to tell me how she'd come to haunt the old house. She was once a kind of night constable, travelling with two male companions, an old doctor and a man called Stephen Taylor. They had visited the same house years before in the long dead past. The science of that age was far beyond our knowledge now, yet the people of that time were still as fallible as we are. The house granted wishes even before they were fully wished. The original owners lay dead because of some awful idle thought. The house was all-powerful, yet it lacked judgment. So Sarah, the night constable, knew what to wish for. I didn't quite realise what I'd done at first. My ears were ringing. My senses wild. I felt lighter than the air. And below me, above me, any way I chose to look, I was looking at myself. Tall and slender, though I always looked a bit awkward in the service uniform. I, she, had her hand in the indentation on the wall, and she was glancing round, not seeing me looking back at her, but knowing I was there. She smiled. A copy of Sarah's mind now pervaded the house, not a ghost, an echo. I thought the law might recognise that distinction, that Sarah might continue her existence. What harm could there be in that? So rather than make the decision myself, I returned to Cambridge and spoke with the Council of Elders. But I feared telling them of Sarah's ability to grant wishes. They might reach a verdict based on her usefulness rather than on the law. So I held that detail from them. The Council deliberated and sent me back to Ely. 
I came to dread that journey across the water, like crossing over after death. The boatmen tell monstrous stories as they heave back on the oars. There are dark undercurrents in that accursed sea. They say the street lamps of lost towns and cities still twinkle deep down in the icy water. I'm a rational man, but I did not dare to look. Sarah, a thousand-year-old ghost, never gave me that awful sense of dread. She fussed around me, keen to please. I sat and listened to her stories. A world of invisible beings, encounters with Daleks, just as terrible as the legends describe them. Sarah, gazing out over the surface of Mars with a small boy dying in her arms. And then the story I asked her to tell again. The one that would decide her fate. You really think this contraption will work? <laughs> it's a simple enough idea. I turn the handle at a regular speed. If you could say something. Um, I, oh, Robert, I can't think of anything to say. That will do fine, thank you. Is that all you need? This is just a test. The funnel captures the reverberations of the human voice, focusing them like a lens. The mechanism directs the tiny movements of the needle, embossing the spoken words into the soft beeswax of the cylinder. I then unlock the needle, wind the cylinder back to the starting position, and when I turn the handle... If you could say something. You've captured my soul. It looks like it. That's a relief. You weren't sure it would work. Not on you. You've no physical manifestation. That's my voice. The things I make happen. I'm a ghost, but I exist. An echo of a woman who lived thousands of years ago, perhaps no different from the recordings of voices etched onto these cylinders. I'm more than just a recording. I can grant wishes. You'll not mention that in the recording. Let the elders make their decision on your good character, not on what they think you can give them. I know what they wish for. I can taste it in the air. An end to the war in mid-Africa, a cure for the sickness that's coming this way, children dropping to sleep. I know what you long for as well, Robert. You know, it's wrong to pry. It's so deep into your mind. I'm sorry. My wife. Can you grant her a wish? No, I don't know. Perhaps if you brought her to the house. I think I can do anything here. I can't even convince the elders to come here. Oh, they're afraid of me. It happens from time to time. There was a family who stayed here once, tried to burn the house down. We're more enlightened today. More rational. But you're still the only person to visit me in <laughs> a very long time. What if you can't convince them of my good character? We both swore to uphold the law. You said you could simply let go. Disperse into the air. If it's what you desire. It's not. They just have to hear your story. Wouldn't it be better to tell the story I first told you, how the mind of Sarah Kingdom was embossed onto this house? They've heard that already, from me. I want them to hear something new from you. 
You've told me lots of stories. The boy who died in your arms on Mars. Mm, the old men caught in the workings of a clock. You've not told me that one. But please, you must know which story I mean. Whatever you wish for. I was still travelling with the Doctor and Stephen, buffeting through space and time. We'd escaped the Dalek plot and so much death in my own time, and seen Christmas and Liverpool and Mars. I was beginning to enjoy my time in the TARDIS. landed at a steep angle. No, it had landed the right way up in a room that was at 45 degrees. Oh, there must have been an earthquake, said the doctor, as we clambered out. The room was a laboratory. Workbenches bolted to the floor. The TARDIS sat wedged between two benches, which gave us something to hold on to. There were also regular grooves in the floor, as if they'd been purposefully built with handholds. Or perhaps they were for fixing the benches and other equipment squarely to the floor. It would be a struggle with the doctor, but we could see our way up to the oval doorway in what we thought of as the ceiling. There were round portholes at regular intervals along one upturned wall. We could only see blackness through the toughened glass. The doctor wanted to know where we were, and he told us that if there had been an earthquake, there might be people who needed our help. Stephen and I exchanged glances, but knew better than to argue. As we mountaineered our way up the first bench, we looked back at the room falling away behind the TARDIS. The lowest section was submerged under deep, and silvery water, the colour of moonlight on the sea. I should say, said the doctor as we let him get his breath, perched on the topmost part of the bench, this is some sort of temporary structure, yes, a prefabricated workplace. Quite ingenious, don't you think? And now the ground has collapsed beneath it. <laughs> That's the trouble with not conducting a proper survey. But we hardly had time to admire his deduction. The TARDIS! We watched in horror as it slowly sank under the silvery water. Funny, but my first sensation was relief. I'd remembered to close the doors. Stephen started to clamber down to investigate... But the doctor grabbed him by the arm. Now, now, my boy, he huffed. Who knows what's in that water, hmm? A laboratory is full of chemicals you shouldn't touch with your bare hands. But there was something else. I could see it in his eyes. The doctor was apprehensive, even fearful. He didn't want to go near the water. Our only chance was to fight our way to the oval door in the ceiling and find out where we were. Perhaps we would find someone there who could help us recover the TARDIS. And people would also mean questions, said Stephen, and they never believed our answers. 
With a sense of foreboding, yet with no other choice, we began to climb up towards the door. The doctor crossly told us he didn't need our help. But Stephen stayed near him anyway. I nimbly climbed ahead. There were simple controls set in the panel by the door, but they were tricky to operate while clinging onto the last handhold in the floor. There was a complex double system of locks, as if they were worried about something forcing its way in. I persevered, my arms exhausted by the effort of just clinging on. And then the lock responded. We clambered up through the hatch into a connecting passage. The walls weren't solid like in the lab, but a tube of hard-wearing fabric. The passage bent at less severe an angle, reaching up perhaps ten metres to another locked oval door. We were in a complex of interconnected temporary rooms. Once Stephen and the doctor had got themselves up into the passage, we closed the door behind us. I worked the controls of the door up ahead, already suspecting what we would find beyond it. The miners didn't have questions. We were clearly the rescue party they thought would never arrive in time. We were on an asteroid in the Red O-Belt, light years from the main traffic of space. They had a day's oxygen remaining and the fastest ship from Red O base couldn't get here in less than two. The doctor and Stephen tended to the two wounded men. The doctor took charge, asking them questions. Yes, there had been an earthquake, but they denied it was because of the mining. The ground had been reverently scrutinized before they settled here. The best attention paid. These were pioneers on the furthest fringes of space. Hodset, determined, brave to the point of being reckless, they would either do or die. And before we had arrived, they'd been stoic about their fate. They had no time for fuss or fear. Except one of the miners, Hutchinson, who haltingly told Stephen she thought something had attacked them. The others grumbled at her to be quiet. But you could see in their eyes... They didn't quite disbelieve her. For the record, can you remember their names? Some of them. Hutchinson, Cowell. Is it important? It might prove useful. You don't believe me. With proof, no one would need to believe you. Do you think we'll reach out to the stars again? That we'll rebuild all that's been lost? I make no predictions. Peoples come and go. Who knows what you'll achieve before your time is up? We should continue. Of course. I didn't mean to upset you. I need to change the cylinder. You said the miners were afraid. I know that look in people's eyes. They weren't scared of death. Not even slow asphyxiation on a barren rock on the very edge of space. There was something else. Some animal fear. Something they could barely articulate. I think we're ready to go again. 
When you told me the story before, you said the doctor was hesitant to help the miners. Oh, no, that's not quite right. There was only a day left of oxygen, so I said we should just get everyone into the TARDIS, take them somewhere safe. But you have to understand, the doctor guarded his ship jealously. Stephen had travelled with him far longer than I had. Even he barely knew any of its secrets. How it could be bigger on the inside, how it could travel through space and time. Not even where it came from. So you fought with the doctor? I challenged him. He said he could fix the mine's life support systems. He laughed to himself about warming the cold equations. No, I don't know what he meant. But then we could sit it out, wait for rescue. There'd be people who could recover the TARDIS. I think even then, he must have suspected. But I was insistent that we could recover the ship ourselves. We were only going to get in his way otherwise, and I hated to feel trapped. We argued. He shouted. Stephen had to intercede. The doctor said we should be careful, that we shouldn't touch the water. I should have felt as if I'd won, but I couldn't meet his eye. We ventured back down the passageway. Below us, the water glitters slick and silver. We take it carefully, climbing down through the oval doorway, gripping the handholds, reaching feet down to the legs of the benches. My innards knot with dread foreboding. There are three miners with us. Hutchinson, Cowell, and a man with a beard. I can't remember his name. Isn't that awful? Because he was the one who... Climbing down is harder than climbing up. I keep missing my footing. Stephen, steel rope coiled around his shoulder, seems to find it easy. It's something he learned as a pilot. Your senses know the whole room's at the wrong angle, and you unconsciously struggle to compensate. Stephen can blot that instinct out of his mind, because that effort to make it right is what puts you in danger. But there's something in the air as well. I can feel it, cold against my skin, something in the room with us. We take our time, clambering down the furniture towards the silver water. The deep pool is clouded with fine, tiny bubbles of silver and purple and white. The rippling surface distorts the familiar outline of the TARDIS, submerged far below. This close, I can see steam curl gingerly over the surface of the water. It almost looks welcoming, like a bath full of bath salts. I could kick off my boots and paddle my bare feet. But I remember the doctor's warning, and we have a job to do. Stephen gives the orders, tying the steel rope into a noose. He pays it out, widening the neck as he goes. We each take the loop of rope in one hand and make our way round the edge of the pool of silvery water. We move from the benches to the bolted-down worktops and shelves on the upturned walls. I worry the brackets won't hold our weight. But prefabricated units like this have been built to brave a hard life in space. 
The idea is we'll drop the noose over the top of the TARDIS. The rope is heavy. It will drift down through the water. When it's round the ship, Stephen can pull the noose tight. Then we can use the winch up in the room high above us where the doctor is still fussing with his equations. The rope should catch around the lintel above the TARDIS's doors and easily lift it out of the water. Stephen makes it sound so simple. He gives the signal and we drop the rope. It looks like we've got it just right. The rope takes its time, idly sinking down into the silver-purple water in a perfect ring above the TARDIS. It's going to work first time. Hutchinson sees it first. There's more steam curling from the water, and the rope is shriveling away, melting into nothing. Stephen thinks quickly, hauls back on the end of the rope in his hands, ties it round himself. But now the water's fighting back, refusing to yield the rope. Carl and I try to help Stephen. He's being pulled right off the shelf and worktop, hanging out over the steaming water. I've got my arms around him, trying to undo the knot of rope to stop him falling. But he's going to take me too. The knot gives way. Stephen, I cry. And he lets go of the rope. We watch it melt away beneath the surface. Stephen sighs. We can't use rope, he says. Perhaps the doctor can think of something. Nobody says a word as Stephen disappears up through the oval door. We know what the doctor is going to tell him. Nothing is going to work. And also... I look at the three miners. We all share the strange mix of excitement and fear. There's something in the water. We only knew what it was, says the miner with the beard. He's crouching down on the worktop on the far side of the room from us. As he leans his head out to scrutinise the surface of the water, it ripples underneath him. A tendril of water, thinner than my arm, slowly reaches up towards him. He moves his head to the left. Tendril bobs back the other way. He moves his head to the right and the tendril mimics him. We laugh as he teases the tendril, bobbing and ducking his head. It responds. It plays with him. I remember now his name was Keith, a particle specialist. With a wife and child. He leans back from the water, eyes twinkling with awe and excitement. He's going to tell us how incredible this is. In front of him, the tendril of water twists back and forth, trying to spot where he's gone. It twitches and shivers. This is no longer a game. I start to call out to warn Keith, but the tendril suddenly lashes towards him. No, no. Ah! We scramble away from the water, grabbing what handholds we can. Keith is gone, melted away. The tendrils seem to swallow his whole face. And now the water's rising. Stephen! Stephen! I shout out to the oval doorway. I can hear him calling back. His words lost under the crash of water as it churns beneath us. 
coal helps Hutchinson cross from the shelves to the benches, and we fight our way up, bench by bench. I glance back at the water. Tendrils reach out to grab my boots. I don't look back again. Cowell cries as she reaches the oval doorway. I'm quickly up beside her. Up through the passage of hard-wearing fabric, we can see Stephen looking down from inside the next room. There's... There's a terrible look on his face. Halfway between us, the ceiling of fabric hangs low, some terrible weight pressing down in it. I know what it's going to be. We fall back as the water crashes down towards us. A splash catches Carwell, burning her clothes. She screams and nearly loses her grip. Hutchinson and I catch hold of her. Hang on for dear life. It's no good, calls Stephen from above us. You won't be able to come this way, not without getting soaked. I'll see if I can find something. Water seeps through the oval doorway drooling thickly down to the silvery pool rising underneath us. I poke my head nearer the doorway, as nearer to the water as I dare. The doctor looks down at me from the far end of the passage. He says something, but I can't hear what it is. I think he's cross with me for not listening to him before. I turn away in exasperation. And my eye catches the controls by the door. There's an intercom system. Doctor, there isn't another way, and the water's rising. The doctor starts to say something back to me uh, about the life support systems. Stephen jostles him out of the way. He's got a long-barreled rifle in his hands. Without a word, he drops it down to me. I reach my hand quickly up through the oval doorway to catch it before it hits any of the water. A splash catches my forearm. I grip my teeth against the sudden pain. I get the rifle down through the doorway and flip it round to face the water. I have no compunction about using it. I just don't know where to aim. I fire on the highest of settings. The water dies back. I see it flinch under the onslaught. Tendrils regroup. Wounded. But the level of water keeps rising. I look back up at the doctor and Stephen. Stephen is shouting something I can't hear over the noise of the water. The doctor's expression chills me to the bone. He's got one arm obscured by the edge of the doorway. I know his fingers are on the locking controls. He has to save the people up there from the rising water. But he also won't let me go. So I make the decision for him. I reach up and press the controls on my side of the oval doorway. I see Stephen cry out before the door closes. Then there's just the noise of the water. Hutchinson and Carl nod their heads. Yes, we've done the right thing. We turn to face the water. Let tentacles reach up us from the rising tide. I shoot at them with the rifle. The tentacles explode in thick, wet blobs, only to reform. The water rises up over the level of another bed, just meters beneath our feet. But I'm an officer of the Space Security Service. I've a duty to protect and serve. And I find that I'm smiling. 
gun clutched in my shaking hands. Because I've decided. This isn't how it's going to end. Hutchinson and Cowell are my responsibility. No one else is going to die. You hear me? No one else is going to die! Whoops, we've, we've run to the end of the cylinder. I'm tempted to stop the story here, but then beg for the next instalment. I'm in your hands. I carried the recording back with me across the water, and then, without stopping to sleep or eat, cross-country to the council. They are wise and brightly revered, yet they are also old men, some of them in their sixties. They struggled with my explanation of the phonographic process. I must remind you, gentlemen, the woman you are about to hear was not visible in the room. She spoke from the very air, a voice from a thousand years ago. Yet I dare any one of you to tell me that she is not just as alive as we are. I turned the wheel slowly, making them wait. But there was nothing to be heard. I quickly tried the second of the cylinders. In my haste, I caught my finger, drawing a line of blood. But there was nothing on any of my recordings. And as I stood there, shaking with embarrassment and anger, I knew what she had done. So I made my recommendation and then returned to Ely. For the last time. Miss Kingdom, I know you're there. You have to open the door. Miss Kingdom, please. I wish you to open... I told you, Robert, it's Sarah. You don't have to be so formal. I'm afraid I do, Miss Kingdom. Can I get you something to eat? Some broth? Or perhaps some wine? No, thank you. Not this time. You're declining my hospitality? I am. Robert, whatever's the... You did something to the machine, so it wouldn't record your voice or mine. A technical fault, I expect. We can try again, can't we? I need the elders to hear me. You need them to come here to hear you for themselves. And once they're here, you can look into their minds and grant them what they wish. You could be grateful. Your wife is pregnant. I've never reached out so far from the house. I didn't know I could. You've... You've given us everything we ever wanted. But at what cost to my soul? You're a rationalist, Robert. You don't have a soul. I've only ever done what you wished for. Sometimes before you knew you wished it, you want the elders to come here for themselves. You think you can convince me that you don't have any desires of your own? I don't. Not for a very long time. Then you have no opinion on the Council's verdict. There can be no exceptions in the law. You were going to argue my case, but you've condemned me. I glimpsed what you really are. I only grant your wishes. You told me you could just let go, disperse into the air. I think so. Robert, I'm sorry. I'm sorry too. But you're not real. You're a contrivance. A ventriloquist's toy. Whatever you say. And it's the law. I swore an oath to the law. 
such a long, long time ago. But that oath still stands. Miss Kingdom, I wish you to disperse. Now. In some ways, it's a relief. I've been here so very long. I just wish... She did as I wished. She surrendered herself. Miss Kingdom? Miss Kingdom? Forgive me. I don't regret my decision. My actions were, have always been, dictated by my oath to uphold the law. So your kingdom is now at peace. Let that be an end of it. from the storm. We'll share our food with you. No. Just the two of us. I said no one would dare to come here, didn't I? They won't cross the water. I thought I'd never make that journey again. for a fire. We'll be safe here. And when you wake up, if you... I used to come here a long time ago. Back before you were born. You've heard about the lady who used to tell the stories. There was one story. She's trapped in a room with two miners. The water rising up underneath them. It burns through steel rope and fabric, melts skin and bone clean away. They can't open the door in the ceiling without putting the other miners at risk. Wet tentacles reach out to grab the three of them. But Sarah is smiling as she clutches her gun in her shaking hands. She's decided. This isn't how it's going to end. The miners, Hutchison and Cowell, are her responsibility. No one else is going to die. You hear me? No one else is going to die! Above their heads, the controls by the locked door come to life. 
The Doctor is using the science of that time, an intercom, a way to speak across the air. I've looked over the plans of the mining complex, he says. There's a narrow access shaft under the floor of the laboratory. Sarah, if you can see the hatch. Too late, Doctor. It's under the level of water. The Doctor and Stephen argue in the other room, desperate to do anything to help. There's nothing else we can do, the Doctor insists. My boy, you must believe me. Please, this isn't your fault. And she switches off their voices. Then she turns on Hutchinson and Cowell. There has to be another way out of here. But there's nothing they can tell her. The water continues to rise toward them. It laps over the edges of benches and worktops, steam curling from its touch. A porthole in the upturned wall fractures as water sloshes around it. The glass doesn't break, but it gives Sarah an idea. What's it like outside? Hutchinson starts to say there's hardly any atmosphere out there in the dark, but Sarah's got no other options. The water's almost on them. She shoots the highest porthole, but the whole complex has been built to take whatever space can throw at it. The glass resists the blasts. Sarah acts quickly. She gives Hutchinson the rifle and scrambles across the legs of the benches to the worktop at the wall. It's not easy, keeping her grip on the upturned shelves as she kicks open a drawer. Dishes and equipment fall into the water. Sarah catches a box as it falls, shakes the contents out. The water is almost at her heels. She reaches down, scoops some water up into the empty box and before it can burn through the side, flings it at the portal above her head. Broken glass rains down on the rising water and is quickly burnt away. Sarah hurries Hutchinson and Cowell across the benches and shelves to the hole out into the night. As the miners protest that there isn't any air out there, Sarah takes the rifle back from Hutchinson. She uses the butt to bash away the last of the jagged glass in the frame of the porthole. There's barely enough room for them to wriggle through. We have to do this quickly. Get out. Climb up to where the others are. Get them to let us in. She has to prod them with the rifle before they move. But then the two miners are scrambling, eel-like, through the narrow space. And Sarah is close behind them. The water reaches up a tentacle to stop her from escaping. She pulls her legs through just in time. And then I'm outside. In the darkness. Go on. It's cold against the bare skin of my face and hands. There's a smell like ash and pepper, and my eyes strain to see what isn't there. We're swallowed up by darkness. The only light, the only comfort, from the portholes behind us. My eyes slowly adjust. The complex looks like a spider. A series of blocky rooms connected by fabric passageways. The spider clings to the edge of a rocky precipice. The limb we've escaped from hanging out over the chasm. More than two-thirds of the laboratory are submerged in the silvery sea. The sea barbels with alien movement. Tendrils and tentacles reach out towards us, glimmering with cold light. As he stretches away into the darkness, what must be miles? Slowly, softly, without any fuss, the level of the water is rising. I gasp in amazement and horror and take a mouthful of thin but tangy air. My lungs struggle to grasp the paltry amount of oxygen. We can't be out here long. Hutchinson and Cowell are just ahead of me, clinging for dear life to the outer edge of the complex. 
It's designed to be adaptable. There are all kinds of grooves and loops for bolting on equipment or new rooms. I grip the handholds with fast-numbing fingers. We make our way slowly up the structure. Above the square block of the laboratory, the fabric passageway is torn right open. Silvery tentacled water streams round and through the wound. It's babbling from a hole in the dark rock underneath. Tendrils hear us approaching, reach out blindly to meet us. I see the tips of the tendrils puckering like hungry, thirsty mouths. I shoot the tendrils. The water dies back enough to let us scramble past. I can't feel the handholds in my fingers. Spots of pink and green dance before my eyes. I feel almost weightless. Hutchinson grabs my arm before I let go of the handhold. For a moment, I'd almost let myself tumble from the complex down into the silvery sea. I try to blink away the dizzy feeling, but we can't afford to stop. The tendrils of the water are pressing ever closer. Gowl reaches the top end of the passageway, where it connects to the squat block of the next room. There are no portholes this side, and we can't see an airlock. Cowell batters her hand against the side of the block. Perhaps the doctor will hear us. But he's working furiously on the life support systems. His quick mind is busy trying to find a way to save you. There has to be a way, he tells himself. There has to be a way. But Stephen hears you. He thinks it's the water trying to break in. Hutchinson and I reach Carl and we make our way slowly up the side of the block. The handholds are cruder here. Loops torn off when the block crashed against the rock in the earthquake. I can't quite catch my breath, but I'm not going to surrender. At last, we're on top of the block. Cowell gets to her feet. I can barely continue on my knees. The inside of my head is burning, and there's still no sign of an airlock. Slow and clumsy. We make our way to the far side of the block. Another tube of fabric passageway leads up to the next identical block up ahead. And next to where the tube connects, there's a scarlet hoop set into the wall. A hole just big enough to wriggle through if you're in a spacesuit. We're grinning madly as we climb up towards the airlock. My heart is beating so fast I think I might explode. Hutchinson is there first. She presses her raw pink hand against the door controls. And nothing happens. She's bashing her fists against the controls as we reach her. Frozen tears glitter in her eyelashes. The controls have been damaged by rockfall. Another victim of the earthquake. We are never going to get through. Not unless... Not unless you go back. There's the intercom in the laboratory. You can tell the doctor to open the airlock. Let the others inside. There might just be time. There's no time to argue. I clamber back down the side of the block. Hutchinson remains by the airlock, hammering the controls. Cowell climbs after me. I try to tell her to wait. My voice catches in the lack of air. Hand by hand, 
I make my way down the fabric of the passageway and over the block where the doctor should be. Cowl hammers on the wall, hoping to get their attention. They might hear her, but not what she wants them to do. I press on. The water still babbles over and through the next bit of passageway, the one barely holding on to the dangling laboratory. Tendrils of silvery water flick round to mouth blindly at me as I approach. I shoot the tendrils, clearing the way ahead. But the moment I lower the gun, they twist and wriggle back towards me. The climb is so steep, I'm going to need both hands. My head is ringing with pain and confusion. I can't think straight. I can't think of any other way. I hand the gun to Carl. He stays up above the torn passageway, shooting the tendrils that try to grab me as I clamber down. I can't see how close they're getting. I focus on each handhold at a time. The hard-wearing fabric shifts and sways. It would be so easy to let go, but I have to keep going just that bit further. I have to get this done. For the first time in ages, I'm grateful for my service training. My lungs straining as I reach the laboratory block. I stop to gaze back up at Cowell, but she's shooting at the tendrils and doesn't look my way. What could she do or say anyway? I struggle down the side of the block to the broken porthole. The water has risen another metre while we've been away. Head buzzing, heart hammering, I squeeze myself through into the laboratory. My fingers are too numb now to feel the bite of the broken glass. I reach for the legs of the uppermost bench and drag my sore body towards the oval doorway in the ceiling. Silver tendrils reach up to meet me. Their tips pucker like ancient toothless mouths. One almost catches my ankle, singeing the side of my boot. I'm not scared. I'm barely feeling anything but the need to get this done. Across the two uppermost legs of the highest bench now. Water surges beneath me, slapping round the base of the bench. He's rising up quickly, knowing I'm here. I watch it surge over the broken porthole, cutting off my only escape. I can hardly breathe. My limbs scream with pain and exhaustion, but I stretch out my arms. I can't quite reach the controls in the ceiling. Rock back to have another go and just dodge a thick tentacle of water darting from my arm. The tentacle collapses back into the writhing mass of the silver pool. But it won't miss a second time. I lunge for the controls. smashes the controls, severing the connection. I can't be sure they even heard me. There's nothing else I can do. I look down on the writhing mass of water, closer to me now than the controls I had to reach for. Long, thin tendrils mouth their rage at me. A single long strand reaches up and looks right into my face. Its mouth buckers as if it's trying to find the words. Port systems grunt with life. Dry air flooding the room. The water hisses in pain as the air touches it. 
I watch the sea tremble and withdraw. The intercom prickles with static. For a moment, I think the doctor has saved me. The tendril of water hesitates just in front of my eyes. Then it lunges forward. I won't scream. I won't scream. I won't die. Robert, you look hungry. Can I get you something? Not for myself, Miss Kingdom. I told you, call me Sarah. And it's no trouble at all. You need to eat. I haven't changed my mind about you, Sarah. Never mind now. Eat your broth. She's beautiful. What's her name? You can't read it in my mind. That would be prying, wouldn't it? But she's the one you wished for. She's eleven now. They grow up so quickly. Look at you. The lines around your eyes. Have things been so bad? Tell me. The young and the old are hit hardest. It comes over them so fast. They want to sleep and sleep until they waste away. Empty the cities, but the country is no better off. There were emergency measures, the army called home. Then the Council of Elders succumbed to the sickness, and with them went law and order. You'd be surprised how quickly it all comes tumbling down. Or maybe it wouldn't surprise you. You tried to warn me that last time. Peoples come and go. Our time came too quickly. It's some kind of disease. It's not a bacterium. It's not a virus. We don't know how it spreads. We hardly know anything. Some are saying it's witchcraft. But you're a rationalist. I was. But then my daughter got ill. I haven't changed my mind about you, Sarah. Being here. Calling you back by retelling your story I've broken the law. You said there weren't any laws anymore. It doesn't matter. I swore an oath. So you came here, summoned me out of the air, thinking I'd grant you your wish. What then? You'll wish me away again. I thought... You gave your mind to this house because it needed your sense of right and wrong. You told me about giving yourself up to the silvery water as a testament to that good judgment. And besides... You don't have wishes of your own. I don't. Not for a very long time. What does she wish for? I don't even think she knows where she is. It's a week since she last opened her eyes. But does she want to be saved? You said things are tumbling down, that there's no law and order. What's befallen her mother? Will she need saving, too? Sarah, please. You can hear me, can't you? I can reach into your mind. I'll grant you whatever you wish for. Want how the story ends? You've done something. You've tricked her. 
I don't choose what people wish for. It's funny what seems important. But if that's what she wants, how the story ends. I won't scream. I won't scream. I won't... I died. I mean, I thought I died. The pain seared through me, burning and cold, cutting through my being and memory. My brother, Brett, at 18, getting some commendation. He stands tall, aloof, pretending it doesn't mean anything. But I know he's terrified and delighted. Then, he's dead. And I've cornered two fugitives. I give you five seconds to hand over that terranium. I'm going to do my duty. I'm holding my gun and there are mice in a cage. The old man protests. Let me speak, please. And then infinity tears us apart. I'm not dead. I'm hanging in empty space. There's something forced through the front of my brain. Hooking me up to the circuit. Perhaps it's the TARDIS that lets me hear them. I can feel the ship down here in the water. It's solid, distinctive. Something for my mind to fix on. Form in the nebulous silver sea. Or perhaps this is just what Keith experienced. The moment that he died. Whatever it is. Hear its voices. They are myriad, teeming, infinite and strange, entwined together like a choir. If you could hear the music of the sea, in more than a thousand years, I've never heard anything like it. The sea speaks to me. It implores me. It begs my service and protection. The voices reach into my mind for the answers they need. To see the flimsy, spider-shaped mind as they see it. The mine shaft drills into their flesh. It's pumping their veins full of chemicals. Even the infrequent ships to the asteroid are warping their scant but vital atmosphere. The humans are fragile and exposed out here. But we are doing terrible harm. I can't speak. I don't have a mouth or teeth or tongue. I'm just an echo of a woman who used to be alive. A pale recording of somebody long dead. A foretaste of the ghost I'm to become. The sea rises up to protect itself. I am part of it, part of they. They attack the spider-like thing on the rocks. They make the earthquake and melt Keith's brain. They are so different. They feel and see so differently. Even with my thoughts washing out amongst them, they barely comprehend what we are. A sea of iron, teeming with voices, stretching thin tendrils out between the stars. I'm one note of discord in the harmony, drowning in the flood. I share their anger. I share their fear. I feel a 
reaching right into my brain. Thoughts evaporate, memories melt away. I'm lost in the currents, nothing to clean on to. But there's something, a fixed point that keeps my mind from being washed away. The distinctive shape, the thrum of energy. No, not the ship. Something even more distinctive. A silhouette. A man. The man who made me, me. Brett Vion, my brother. Eyes wide in the moment I shoot him. The instant, never ending. My limbs cling to the legs of the uppermost bench. I'm shaking, exhausted, hacking my lungs up, desperate to draw breath. But I'm alive. It ate into my brain and all the things I am, and recoiled from my touch. They're calling to me. The myriad voices. The doctor and Stephen Taylor. It's all right, my girl, it's all right. I'm going to take it from here. They heard me. They opened the airlock. Hutchinson and Cowell are fine. Our faces and fingers have something like sunburn where they were exposed to the darkness. Hutchinson needs someone to look at her hands. But there are medics in the rescue party due sometime the next day. I fixed the life support systems, of course, says the doctor. They'll last at least that long. He's anxious to be going. But Stephen says we should stay until the rescue ship gets here. See these people safe. See the story to the end. I can't say anything. My throat and head are raw. The doctor looks me over and looks relieved it's not more serious. He's a spiky old cove at the best of times, but I'm touched by his concern. Then before I can stop him, he calls down to the water. I will speak with you, he declares. And a long, thin tendril twists up quickly and spikes into his mind. The doctor knows what this creature is. He recognized it at once, a creature of thought, a living idea, nearly as ancient as he is. Does the creature read him as it read Sarah, or does the doctor read the sea? I should say you can read my thoughts now, can't you, eh? You see what I might choose to do. I can use the life support systems here to fight you. I understand your chemistry. I could turn the whole sea to dry desert. In that moment of union, he makes that threat plain. Or... I might grant the sea's wishes. To us, looking on, the deal is made in an instant. Then the tendril releases the doctor, and he topples back into Stephen's arms. He's conscious. He smiles. You young people shouldn't look so worried, he tells us. I've simply held back the tide. The miners abide by the agreement. They must leave this place. 
They're in awe of the Doctor. It's me they keep away from. I'm the one who made the connection. The one who shouldn't have survived, but did. I don't tell them why the sea released me. It saw how much I had to put things right. It saw into my mind, my heart, and it pitied me. We wait for the rescue ship. I can't escape the ash and pepper stink of the dark outside. Or the suspicious looks from the miners. They don't say anything to me, but they watch me all the time. The doctor's high chuckling breaks the silence. <laughs> you know, he says, this is rather like the time I was trapped in Charlemagne's library. The, the night of the terrible fire. <laughs> No one's in the right frame of mind for his funny stories. Hours tick by. I think I sleep for a bit. There are dreams of a silvery sea. And Brett. And a world where things were different. Where I don't regret a thing. Then the intercom crackles. Yes, we hear you loud and almost clearly, says the doctor, taking charge. We hear the shuttle pilot going through his Delta V. Stephen helps him with his sums. The miners have packed their scant possessions while I've been asleep. They ignore me entirely and barely spare a word for the doctor and Stephen. They won't spare a backward glance for this place when they've gone. Come along, both of you, the doctor tells us, suddenly weary. We must be on our way, too. The TARDIS sits at the bottom of the upturned laboratory. Around it, I heap the detritus of investigation. Specimen jars, spatulas, scientific kit, all now warped and broken. I did what I said I'd do. Nobody else has died. So why, as we leave the asteroid behind... Do I feel so wretched? That's the end of the story. I'd forgotten it ended like that. When you told me it the first time. Stories have lives of their own. Every time they're different. You're a different person telling it. Yes. I think I am. You were so proud the first time. You'd saved all those miners' lives and the rock was left to its native... I was going to say people. You think they'll ever be left in peace? I bought a temporary reprieve. Hutchinson and Cowell would never dare go back. Not them. But someone will ignore their warnings. A year... Perhaps a generation. There were precious minerals in that rock. There was someone's fortune. But the Silver Sea would be there. There's a fragment in the archive. Those who don't remember the past are condemned to repeat it. Is that what's happened to you? Your people? You tell me. What lesson did we forget? I 
don't know. On the boat here, I thought it might have been you. Wishing this sickness that I had to call you back. I'm not the monster you think me. I'm an officer of the law. I want to put things right. Then end the sickness. Not because I wish it, but because it's right. I don't know that I could. Really. You called me back into being, yet I feel so depleted. I can't reach outside the house. I stretch out and feel my core unraveling into the air. Then cure the sickness here. My daughter's in the house. She seems so peaceful in her sleep. She'll die if you don't save her. I don't know that I can. Sarah, please, I'll do anything you ask. There's something, isn't there? Something you wish for. Tell me. I gave my life for Hutchinson and Cole. They never even thanked me. I'd communed with the silvery sea, sided with the creature. I saw it in their eyes while they waited to be rescued. I'd been touched by something. I wasn't right anymore. It doesn't excuse them, but after what they'd been through... But it's not just them. I wonder what happened to the real me. She never came back to the house. I know she must be dead by now. As is Stephen Taylor, somewhere out in time. But the doctor can travel to anywhere or when. And he's never been back to see me. I don't know what you want me to do. And then there are the guests who've stayed here over the years. The ones who tried to set me alight or reported me to the authorities. They lied about what I had done to them. They sent priests and prosecutors. I answered their questions and granted their wishes. They've never come back to see me. I did. I came back. Mm, You fought my case. For a while. You tried to trick me. I needed them to come to see me for themselves. I am what I can do when you're here. I stand by my decision. I did what the law required. And yet you're back here. The only one who'd come back. You want me to come back to see you? I'll do that. Gladly. As often as you like. No. I want you to stay. There's nothing out there for you anyway. Your law and order's tumbling. You're serious? You'll be comfortable here. I'll look after you. Furnish your every need. How long do you want me to stay? That depends how long you live. That's the offer. You admired me once because I volunteered my life to save those miners. Now it's your turn to do your duty. I'll save your daughter if you surrender me your life. Well, what's it going to be?
Thank you.